Contextualization or communication. How do missionaries communicate? This is what we are laboring to explain. And we need now to look at four points, four positions on contextualization. We've, we've looked at the four on the square of opposition already. Holy reverence or holy incomprehensibility, worldly incomprehensibility or worldly reverence. Relevance, not reverence, relevance. So one or two or three or four. And we can slide around on that square, but our goal is to be in number one, and the worst position is number four. Let's look at these here. I've got a few examples. Worldly incomprehensible. That would be people who are drunk. People who are drunk make no sense. They are incomprehensible. But at the same time, they, they still know that they love sin. Or what about academics? Sometimes people who are academics who make their living from a university, they're not very clear to listen to. You might try to read their books and struggle to understand what they're saying. And they love worldly thinking. They love all the ideas of climate change and overpopulation. They love the ideas of fascism where the government becomes God. And they hate the ideas of freedom and free speech and free religion. And they despise male and female because they despise God. Those are the academics who are difficult to understand, but they're very worldly. That's position, oh no, I wrote it down as number one. Mark that down as position number four in your notes there. Change that in your notes. That should be position four, which I listed first in this list of reviewing them. And then position, the second position that we'll talk about is position number three. Even though it's marked as position two in your papers, just change that to position number three. These are the worldly and relevant. These are the people who are worldly, but they're trying to come near and communicate. Think of Julius Malema. He loves all the ideas of the world, but he's trying to be very clear to understand. He wants the poor people to get what he's saying. Flushing toilet for everyone in South Africa. Very clear. Very relevant. Very approachable. At least that's the way he talks. Other examples of worldly and relevant would be perhaps in the Christian world, Billy Graham. He was a true Christian as far as I know. As as, as I can evaluate, I can't see hearts, of course. But he became worldly because he, he hungered too much to be relevant. In fact, in the recent book I read, The History of Rock and Roll by, uh, I think it was Randall Stevens, he documents in that book how Billy Graham changes over 15 years. And I reread that section of the book today and marked off the sections where Graham begins taking a certain position on politics and culture and communism and the length of hair and a style of music. And then slowly, every couple years, at first, Graham speaks very harshly against those things. But every couple years, he begins to accept them more and more. Until in the late 1990s, Billy Graham appeared on Larry King Live. And he said that the Pope was his most trusted spiritual advisor. This is a Baptist saying that the Pope, the Catholic Pope, is the most trusted advisor. He said that he's very close with the Mormons. The Mormons believe 
that we are all going to become gods and that polygamy is a good thing and that all men will be polygamists in eternity. Would you want to go to heaven like that? Billy Graham further said that Hindus may go to heaven as well because there is a wideness in God's mercy. Uh, Billy Graham, that's from a song. That's not from the Bible. He quoted that phrase, there's a wideness in God's mercy. That's a song. That's not the Bible. Why don't you try quoting the Bible? Well, because in his effort to become relevant, he slid near the world. Position number two, holy and incomprehensible. Maybe this is too harsh. Uh, Scribble out number three there in your notes and write number two. Maybe this is too harsh, but maybe it will communicate. John Owen. John Owen is a good and godly man, far wiser in many respects than I am, and far beyond me in spirituality and intellect. But to read John Owen is very difficult. His books are still sold today because they are so good. But commonly, if you buy a Puritan paperback written by John Owen, it will be updated by Curtis Laws or Curtis Laws, who's the guy that laws someone, some uh, modern abridger who will take John Owen's large and heavy works and will cut and change and move them around until they're a little more comprehensible, a little more relevant. And John Owen famously said, when he heard John Bunyan preach, because John Owen and John Bunyan lived at the same time. John Bunyan was the uneducated preacher who was very relevant. And John Owen, when he heard Bunyan preach, was one time asked about his estimation of John Bunyan's preaching, since he was an uneducated preacher. And John Owen was very educated. And as the story goes, John Owen said, I would give all my learning if I were able to touch hearts like John Bunyan. I do not in any way want to pick on John Owen, for he was a very useful man in God's kingdom and far godlier than I. But it is difficult to find an example of someone who fits in the holy and incomprehensible uh, category. H-O-L-Y, holy. But there is the danger that if we focus too much on only preserving, as missionaries, on only preserving our culture, on only preserving Christian culture, that we may not reach out so much. And I think many within the early missions movement may have fallen into that. Maybe I should have written the early missionaries. I don't know. But again, I don't want to pick on them either. But maybe some of the early missionaries who maybe lived in a compound rather than living with the people like David Livingston. David Livingston lived with the people, but maybe many other people, missionaries, when they came, they would have built up a compound. So it would be basically like a small European town, and then they could from there reach out to the surrounding areas. David Livingston blasts that in his letters, and he says over and over, I don't want to hear of one more missionary coming to Africa unless they get out of the Cape area and go to the unreached areas. So perhaps that was this idea. They were holy men, but because they would not 
contextualize because they wouldn't live with the people, learn the people's language, come near to the people. The people weren't understanding the message. And then category number four in your notes, which is really category number one, should be holy and relevant. I have two examples there, Paul the Apostle and Martin Luther. Paul denied his personal desires and habits. Paul was very successful in planting churches. That's evidence of his relevance. Paul knew how to relate to people. He didn't sit around just writing books all day. He was constantly out walking. But when he was in jail, yes, he picks up his pen and starts to write. But he was also holy. He writes about holiness in his epistles. And he was hated and persecuted and ultimately killed. Who gets killed but someone who's holy? Martin Luther, evidence of his relevance. He understood and he addressed the dominant religion of Catholicism. He used writing. That was a method preferred in European circles in the 1500s. He was as relevant as he could be. And yet he was holy. He drew a firm line between the mass, the pope, indulgences, purgatory, and true Christianity. I think I could also add to this category, holy and relevant, Paul Schleyline. Paul is striving to be a holy Christian. But in just a moment, we'll move on to nine ways to be relevant. I think Paul's a good example of those nine. So with that, let's move on to three factors that turn relevance into worldliness. That is, what if you're striving after relevance... What do you have to avoid so that you don't become worldly? You hear about the man, Billy Graham, who at the beginning in the 1940s, he was a solid conservative biblical Baptist preacher. But slowly over 50 years, he got to the point where he was quoting poets rather than the Bible. And he says Hindus might become, might go to heaven without being born again. What happened over 50 years? I think he did not guard these three factors. So we want to be relevant. We want to be as relevant as possible, but not worldly. How can we do it? Number one, relevance becomes worldliness when our efforts at being relevant, number one, assume that cultures are not influenced by sin. If we assume my culture is good or The African's culture is good. Or the Chinese culture is good. Or any other culture. Our relevance will turn into worldliness very quickly if we assume, oh, those poor people in Peru. They're really good people at heart. They just don't know about Jesus. No, no, that's their problem. They're not good people. They're really, really bad people. Outside of the gospel, they're savages. They're dirty and backward. They will kill themselves and the people around them. And if they could, they would kill Jesus again. But we're going to them because Jesus is full of love and he saves people like that. Just like he saved you and you were that way. Oh, I wasn't that way. Then you're probably not a Christian today. But if you know that you were that way and it's only grace that made you different from that, then just transfer that thinking to those people. The people in America, the people in Europe, the people in Scotland, the people in Scandinavia, in Russia or Bangladesh or Pakistan or Japan or Africa, 
We were all that way. And when you go as a missionary to the Ndebele people, or when you go as a missionary to the people in Burundi, or the people in any country, we need to go saying, sin has affected this culture. My guard is up. I'm not saying, oh, I just want to learn. Teach me your culture. We do want to learn, and we'll talk about that just now. We do want to learn, but we are not a complete open book. We have a guard. We have a sieve. Have you ever seen men when they're getting ready to, to mix uh, plaster? They'll take their shovel, and put those sho- they, they will put their shovel in the sand, and they'll have a screen. I saw some men just on Sunday doing this as I was driving to church. They had a fan, the, the grate, the screen, the, the guard for a fan. And one man took a shovel and he was tossing the shovel of sand onto the fan and the fan would hold the rocks out and the sand would fall through it. So when the sand had fallen through the fan, the rocks are left there. He tosses the rocks away. Then the next shovelful comes. That's the way you need to approach the culture. I'll take any pure sand you've got. Fried cabbage from the Tsongas. I'll take that. But I don't want the rocks fearing spirits and running to St. Gomez. I don't want that. I'll take the good. I don't want the bad. But that only comes if we do not assume that cultures are free from sin. Number two, your relevance will turn into worldliness when you fail to interpret the meaning of cultural practices. This is very important. We need to learn to interpret cultural practices. And I am so thankful for my Tsonga brothers in Christ. I'm even thankful for Tsongas who are not Christians because they can all help me to interpret. If I've got the Bible and I can get the information from them, then I can exegete and interpret. So I asked my brother here in the front row some time ago at a funeral when people come up with a shovel and there's dirt on the shovel and the box is in the ground and then they invite everyone to come up and take a little of the dirt and put it on the casket, is that good or bad? Should I do that? What, what, what I'm asking is this, what message is being sent by this cultural practice? So when the Tsongas wear Shibilana, I want to ask, what message is being sent with that? When the young men dance Makwaya, I want to ask what message is being sent by that dance? When we perform certain rituals at birth, what message is being sent by those rituals? When we have Lobola custom, whoa, whoa, before I support Lobola, I want to know what message is being sent. I want to interpret it. Now, you may interpret it and say, oh, this is sending the message of family. This is saying we have a close family. Or maybe this is saying we love our children. Or maybe this is saying let's protect ourselves from disease. Oh, those are all very good messages. But what if secretly a message is being sent? Fear spirits. Fear witchcraft. That's what I want. I want to find out. What messages send that message? Uh, I'm sorry, what cultural forms send that message? I need to know that because I don't want to send that message. I'm a Christian and I want to be 
holy. I don't want to be worldly. If I'm worldly, I quench the spirit and I grieve the spirit. If I'm worldly, I lead all of the Tsongas who are following me to Christianity. I lead them into worldliness and I lay a foundation with no rebar and no steel. I want steel. I want rebar in my foundation. I don't want any cracks. I want it to be firm and solid that when I'm dead, the church still lives. So I better be sure that I'm not laying a worldly foundation, which means I better exegete and interpret all of the cultural forms that I come across. You have to do that too. Before you say, yes, let's use this musical style in worship or yes, let's do this certain practice. Yes, let's do that thing. Before you say yes to a thing, you need to ask, what is the message? I'm not saying don't do it. You might do it, but you have to ask yourself, what is the message? I had to do this in a simpler case some time ago. A young man in our church went out to buy the elements for the Lord's table. The elements are bread and grape juice. Those are the elements because that's what Jesus used. He returned with bread, soft bread. It's now Saturday afternoon. But he brought back grape cold drink, not grape grape juice. And so I asked my wife, what is the message of cold drink? Because tomorrow we're going to have the Lord's table. And I want to send the message that Jesus was sending, right? Maybe cold drink will do it. Maybe. But I want to think about it and interpret it. I did think about it. And I interpreted it. What would you do? What would you do with it? Would you say... That's just fine. Anything matters. Or you say, no, definitely not. Would you, would you be uh, better safe than sorry? Uh, Don't use it. Don't use it. Just be safe. I don't know. I don't know. Just be safe. I know there's no problem with you. So uh, throw it away. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. We're not bound by the law. What law in the Bible? We're not bound. Grape is grape. It all has sugar. The point is, Exegete, interpret. Let me give you another one, but this is a modern example. During the government's response to the Chinese virus, uh, many churches were closed down. And so they began to have services on the internet, on Zoom. What message is being sent with church on the internet? Option one, compromise, weak, no principle. You don't love the church. Is that the message that is sent? If you, if you on your phone or on your computer or on your TV, if you watch the pastor preach and you watch the singing, but you stay at home, is the message weak, compromised, don't love the church? Or is the message on the other side? Grace, 
the Christian community. Fear of God. What message is being sent? The point is we need to exegete every form. We need to ask ourselves what message is being sent by whatever thing we're doing. And every culture has those. Number three, if your efforts at being relevant stem from popular opinion rather than exegetical and historical judgment, then your relevance will turn into worldliness. That means if you use Zoom because everyone likes it, if you use the internet or WhatsApp or Facebook Live or I don't know whatever people were using, if you use that thing because everyone was using it, if that was your motive, you say, well, look, a lot of people are doing it. I mean, oh, the guy I really appreciate, he did it. If that's your reason, then you will probably slide from relevance into worldliness. Of those three, which is the most important? Number one or two or three. Assuming that cultures are not influenced by sin or failing to interpret the meaning or stemming from popular opinion. Which is the most important? One. I think number two. Because number two assumes number one. And you can't do number two without number one. So if I had to pick one, I would say number two is the most important. You've got to learn to interpret what you're doing. Now, next section. Three factors that turn holiness into incomprehensibility. The use of biblical languages without an explanation of their terms. Saying propitiation, redemption. Talking like a Christian to people who don't understand Christian talk. It will become incomprehensible. And I'm seeing that in Makasa right now. I've said kukuburiwa. I've said kuponisiwa. I've seen kupfumela. But they don't have a clear understanding of the meaning of those words. And so in their minds, they blurred all kuponisiwa talk into kukuburiwa. Kukuburiwa means to be baptized. So the people that I'm evangelizing are saying, oh, well, it all means to be baptized. Salvation is baptism, and I was already baptized, so I'm done. No, you're not getting it. If I use biblical terms in an attempt to be holy, I'm actually going to be incomprehensible. I'm not saying don't use biblical terms. I'm saying explain them slowly and carefully. Number two, hasty rebuke of cultural sins without weighing their habits, efforts, and spiritual condition. Wow. Let's talk about this for just a moment. There are some things that are right and some things that are wrong but you need to be discerning in the time and the place in which you talk to sinners about them as a missionary. There may be something that they ought not to do, but you're just going to need to give them time where they can adjust to all of the things you are telling them. They need to get this, but they might need some time. Let me give you some examples. Family worship. I have led people to Christ and they do not do family worship. In fact, they don't even talk to their family about Jesus. And in my mind, I think, what are you doing? Talk to your mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. What is going on with you? But I forget this person lived however many years and they're slowly growing. And look at these 10 things they've already changed. And look at these five things they've added. And compare them with the other believers. 
They're really growing. Yes, they need to speak to their children and parents and wife. And yes, they need to have family worship. It's hard. Help them. Pray for them. Mention it gently. But you might need to give time. And there are many other things like that. Many of them have to do with the family. I've seen parents who have become Christians and their daughters still dress terribly. What are you thinking? That's so obvious. You can't, you be a Christian and your 17-year-old daughter dressed like a prostitute. They don't know how to change. They need time. They're not accustomed to giving their daughter practical counsel or their daughter would not be doing that when she's 17. She's doing that because for the last 15 years, they didn't know how to raise her. And so now you're going to come in and say, fix the problem. And they're saying, I don't know how to fix it. And she's big now. And if I say no, then she'll get angry and shout. And then she won't become a Christian. She'll never come to church. And you're just a white man. What do you know? So I want to be holy, but maybe my effort at holiness will say, you tell those people what to do. And then the new Christian says, uh, uh, just let him pass. Okay. Phew. And then they won't do anything because they're already working on five other problems right now. And you're pushing them on this one. And they say, if I try to do that one, you're saying, uh, the whole family's going to fall apart. And so in your effort to harshly rebuke them or to correct them or to critique them, your effort is holiness, but it's going to come across as incomprehensible. Because you weren't relevant, you weren't slow and patient and gentle with them. Introducing forms that are not clearly connected to Scripture. That can become incomprehensible. I mean things like mission boards, colleges, seminaries, publishing houses, extra meetings, association meetings, or in the, Angl- in the Anglican Church, in the Presbyterian Church, the synods and the councils and the assembly meetings. And then the people that you're looking at, that the people that are learning from you are thinking, you know, he used the Bible for everything, but this last couple of times, he's just talking because those things aren't in the Bible. But maybe you're communicating them in your attempt to bring them along and make them more mature. Well, it might not be mature, but in your attempt, what you're actually doing is confusing them and becoming incomprehensible. So let me close tonight with giving you nine ways to be relevant. And really, this is the heart uh, or, or what we're driving at. Everything up to this point has been trying to let you see how important this issue is. We want you to become godly, holy communicators. We want you to become relevant, persuasive, pragmatic communicators. You've got to be a communicator that gets the job done. But you've got to be a communicator that is still holy. You've got to do both. How do you do that? Answer is you contextualize. Or you communicate biblically. How can we do that? Let me give you nine ways to be relevant. And on each of these, we could go at length. We'll just go briefly over each of these. Number one, learn their language. If you are going to be a missionary, you need to learn their language. And I would say more master their language with the greatest ability that God has given you. Not all men can master a language, but master the language as well as you can. The language says, I love you. 
You will never reach their heart or their culture or an enduring ministry without the language. Number two, eat their food. This is not a command of the Bible, but isn't that the kind of thing Paul references in 1 Corinthians 9? Jews, I became a Jew to those under the law, as under the law, to those without the law, without the law. That's in a passage about eating meat offered to idols. That's in a passage about eating different kinds of meat that might have been forbidden by the Jewish law. Eat the food that the people have. I've never eaten Mapani worms. I've never eaten um, termites. But I did say I was willing to eat Mapani worms or termites or whatever if it, if it would make any Tonga listen to me or Venda or Shona. I have eaten Gushe. The point is, however God calls you as a missionary, if you're not eating different foods, then you're probably not a full missionary. <laughs> you should be eating different foods because you've changed cultures and you're learning a new language. If you're a full New Testament apostle, Paul missionary, eat their food. It says, I love you. Live with them. This might be the second most important after learn their language. Number four, study their history. They might not even know their history. You might have to piece it together. You might have to find the oldest people you know and ask them questions. And then you might have to remember, some things they tell me aren't true. I'm going to compare it with 10 other people. And then I'll mix it together and guess what what the truth is. Learn their history. If you can buy a book, buy a book. If you can find some course or some uh, old people to talk to, learn their history. It's very exciting to Tsongas. I can tell when I say a Tsonga proverb or when I reference the Tsongas that came from Mozambique and how they fought with the Zulus and then ran north into Mpumalanga. If I can mention those things, because I read a book by a Tsonga man who wrote 800 years of Tsonga history. And I read that because I wanted to know about the Tsongas. I want them to know I care about you. I'm trying to learn from you. Number five, mix your children with their children. I get the most shocked looks, the most persuaded looks when I'm driving my Bucky and I see someone wave at me with a shocked face and I wave at them and then I realize they're not waving at me. They're waving at the four blacks and two whites in the back of my Bucky. Ah, that's why, because that's not common. Mix your children because it says... We're not afraid of you. We're not angry. Your kids can influence my kids. And then people know that immediately. People know, oh, they're hiding their children. They don't want their children. They think we're dirty. Makes your children so that they'll know, "We we don't think you're dirty. We love you. Number six, ask them questions about family, marriage, cooking, jobs, funerals, money, jokes. Ask them questions about all manner of things. Because you have a book in front of you every time you have a Tsonga or Venda or Shona person. You can learn all about their customs. Ask them the questions, what does this cultural practice mean? I have asked so many Tsongas, what does Lobola mean? What's its purpose? What does it do? Is it marriage? I want to know what do they think? Number seven, be honest about your own faults and the faults of your culture. I think that is a way to be relevant. Commonly, if you come in as a missionary, you'll probably come in with something more than them. You at least come with the Bible more than them. But if you come as a missionary, you may also come from a richer society. 
So they're going to give you some kind of societal respect. Don't come in with pride as well. Pride will not communicate. So privately, look at your heart and see your own sins. Look at your culture and your society honestly at the sins of America. Look honestly at those sins and begin to hate them. Then when you evangelize, don't be afraid to mention them. Why? Because your evangelism is going to do what? You're going to be teaching them how to be holy, which means you have to tell them all the things they're doing wrong. You have to tell those people, you can't live with a woman before you're married. You can't even touch her. You're going to have to tell those people, you can't tie the string around the baby's belly. You can't get angry. You can't beat your wife. You can't be lazy. You can't get drunk. Stop it. Everything you're doing is wrong. And it's going to come across as prideful. And these days, because of our terrible TV, people will even maybe say the term racist, which is not true at all, but they might say that kind of a concept. And another danger is that you yourself might actually believe these people are bad. Not me. Not me. These people are. Which is why I said at the beginning of number seven, be honest about your own faults and the faults of your culture. Look into your own soul and find those things so that you can honestly and truly repent of them yourself on Tuesday and Saturday. So that when you're just out evangelizing, humility comes out because you were growing humility in your garden all week. So it's not a problem for you to say, you're doing wrong and you need to repent because they all know, yeah, he's also humble himself. But if they see a man who says, I come from glory and I am the living personification of beauty and wonder and strength and power. It's not going to communicate well. But if you come and say, I am a worm and no man. So that when I preached that at Madovi, or was it Makasa? Makasa, I think. Last Thursday from Psalm 22, verse 6. I had several grandmothers saying, no, pastor, that's not you. I said, no, no, it is, it is. Pastor, it's not you. But I stayed on that point. I wanted to convince them that that is me. Why? Because I'm going to tell them it's them. That's next. You're next. But first, I got to prove that I'm there. But you see those grandmas, what do they want to say? Oh, he's a nice young man. What is he, 22? They think I'm a nice, pretty little man. Oh, he's so kind to come and play the guitar for us. And he gives us things. No! I'm a sinner saved by grace. And if there's any good in me, it's Jesus. And you are a sinner not saved by grace. And there's very little good in you. And nothing that will take you from from earth to heaven. Nothing. But I can't tell you that because it's not relevant to you. I want to tell you that holiness, but let me start by this. I'll tell you how bad I am. And then from me, I'll jump and include you. And if you can admit that I'm bad, maybe you'll admit you're bad too. Number eight. Set your standard of living in some approximation with theirs. Again, missionaries commonly come from more advanced or developed uh, cultures that are more economically advanced and developed. If so, they will commonly have a standard of living with more 
money than those around them. So set your standard of living in some approximation to those among whom you live. Number nine, speak of their sins with an eye to their good and happiness. So that even when you say they are full of sin, relate to them by communicating how this information is really like a lottery ticket for you. If I can use a bad illustration, an illustration of something bad that they would think of as good. No, no, I'm telling you that you're a sinner, but the information I'm giving you is really as if I were giving you a 200 rand bill. It's really, really valuable. It tastes bitter, but when you swallow it, it will be sweet. You've got to get this because grandma, even though you don't understand Kokwana or Gogo, you think this is bad and it is bad, but if you'll swallow it down, you'll find that it's the path to heaven. Somehow you're going to have to teach them, I'm telling you bad things because really, I really, really love you and I'm about to save you. And if you'll take this, you'll be saved. Questions or comments regarding contextualization, how to communicate, how can we touch the hearts of our hearers and get the message across? Yes. In general, should we be more bold or should we recommend more patience if we're dealing with other cultures? Which way should we lean, more boldness or more patience? I'm not sure those are in opposition, so I can't say which one to lean toward more. I could see you being bold and patient at the same time. Do you mean bold and gentle? Yeah, bold and gentle. Um, What should be your default? Maybe I'll have your default be gentle until the people know you love them and then switch your default to bold as long as they know you love them. But as soon as you can see they're doubting that I love them, Switch back to gentle. (laughs) Stay kind and gentle. Sell them with softness and grace until they see, wow, this man is full of grace. And then say, okay, now you need the holiness. Good question. Comments or questions? Let's close in prayer this evening. Father, we want to wisely speak your word. We want to win sinners to Christ. Oh, help us to be wise communicators. Help us to communicate the truth. Help us to be holy and relevant and not fall in any of the compromises. I pray that we would learn to contextualize without compromise. I pray that we would learn to communicate with our lives, with our hearts, with our money, with our children, with our words, with our face, with our eyebrows. Teach us to talk so that they will listen. Teach us to speak so that sinners will come to Christ. Give us tears for the lost. And give us a basket of fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.